0: Hey there, I'm glad you're here for Under Our Feet. This is our second episode, and if you haven't yet listened to the first episode about the Pinocchio Orogeny, I'd recommend going back and listening to that first. We go through some terminology and history there that will be helpful as you listen to this episode. Also, if you're enjoying Under Our Feet, tell a friend who you think might like it too, and remember to tap subscribe so you can stay up to date on our latest episodes. I'd also really appreciate it if you left a quick rating and review, this helps other people find the show, and I read all the feedback and appreciate it. If you're really liking what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon. There's a link at uofpod.org, which might not have been working if you tried to do it after the first episode, but the website should be working well now. If you're able to give some support, you can get some cool benefits, starting at just a dollar a month, like shoutouts on the show, stickers, t-shirts, and even a personalized mini-podcast that I'll publish on the show's feed. And speaking of shout-outs, I want to take a minute to thank my first round of patrons on Patreon. That's Katie DeMetz, Bill and Georgia Ringel, and Donna Molinick. I'll admit that one of those is my mom, but if you can't get your mom as a supporter of the show, then who can you get? As a reminder, you can email me anytime at rudy at uofpod.org if you noticed anything I got wrong or have any questions about Wisconsin's geology. At the end of the first season, I'm hoping to do an episode where I answer listener questions. I'd love to hear from you and connect. Today, we're fast-forwarding a little less than half a billion years. For you place-value enthusiasts out there, that's 400 million years after the Pinocchio Orogeny. That's the subject of our last episode. And we're focusing on the area around Baraboo, Wisconsin. If you remember that Wisconsin is kind of shaped like a mitten, Baraboo is right at the transition from the hand part to the wrist, in the middle of the state if you're going from east to west we've got a fascinating geologic story of mountain building, ancient environments, and really cool, really old, sandy beaches. These days, over a billion years later, it's an amazing landscape and it hosts Devil's Lake State Park, one of the most popular state parks in the country with millions of visitors each year. How did we get from a billion and a half year old beach with waves washing gently on sandy shores to a landscape known for its unique and surprising purple cliffs? And just to preface, this story is a little more complex than the previous episode, in part because many of the details are still being worked out by geologists. And this reflects the science of geology generally. Our world is not a straightforward place, and we can't determine what's going on without a lot of hard work to get through as much uncertainty as we can. So bear with me as we get into the weeds a little bit on some really interesting stories about Baraboo. Some of it might not make sense right away, and that's okay. Stick with it to the end, and I promise you'll come away with a deeper understanding and appreciation for what's going on under our feet, and how we actually figure that stuff out. And you know, we can tell nice stories about different places, but that'll miss some of the truth, that it's not easy to find the facts with which we weave these stories, and that there are always gaps in what we know. Now, with all that in mind, let's get on to the show. Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into earth and deep into time to seek out the geologic events and forces that shape the world around us. I'm Rudy Molinick and this is season one The Geology of Wisconsin. My personal story of Devil's Lake starts about eight years ago, in the summer of 2013. Back then, I was kind of an arrogant young rock climber. Over the past few years, I tackled some fairly hard rock climbs all over the American West, in Colorado, the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming, Red Rocks in Nevada, I went bouldering in Bishop, California. With all that under my belt, I was pretty confident when I headed over to Wisconsin to climb at Devil's Lake. If you've never been to Devil's Lake, or even if you have, close your eyes for a second, um, unless you're driving. And picture a bright blue lake bounded by green trees and purple cliffs footed by the large boulders that have fallen from up high. It's very picturesque. At Devil's Lake, the climbs are up on those purple cliffs, and don't worry, we'll get to why they're purple a little bit later on. And you either have to place your own protection in cracks, like jamming little metal wedges into the rock as you go up, or walk around to the top and set up a rope. When we got to the lake, I was feeling pretty darn confident about a climb I'd picked out ahead of time. It was a classic called Britain's Crack that's rated pretty easily. Easy enough, I thought, that I should have been able to get up it no problem. The trouble started about halfway up. There was a notch in the rock face, just big enough that you could squeeze in, turn around, and sit down, looking out over the lake. It was really beautiful. But to continue, I needed to reach out and above the notch and find something to hold on to that I couldn't really see. I decided to take a little break and steel myself for that blind move. The thing about climbing, though, is that it relies on flow and momentum. By stopping for this break, I'd stopped that flow. Now I had to start cold, halfway up the cliff face, on a blind grab protected only by the little pieces of gear I jammed into a crack. And the rock at Devil's Lake is famously really greasy, so it's really slippery up there. Suffice to say, I wimped out and got lowered down off a climb that I thought I should have been able to do without even sweating. I was definitely not expecting to be humbled by a small cliff in the middle of the Midwest. After that day, I learned a few things that made me feel slightly less embarrassed. First, the rock I was climbing on was the famous Baraboo quartzite. It used to be a sandstone, a beach sand deposit. Then, like a caterpillar into a butterfly, it was metamorphosed for rocks rather than insects. This means they get cooked by really high pressure and heat deep within the earth. This process turned the rocks at Baraboo from probably a crumbly red sandstone to that purple, really hard, really durable rock. And that's one of the reasons why there are even cliffs there today, because the quartzite is so strong and hard to erode. It also gave it an almost greasy texture by fusing together all the sand grains into one slippery homogeneous mass. So my feet slipping around added to the fear that I was feeling up there. The second thing I learned later is that I was far from the first person to have bailed out of that climb. In fact, the first person we know to have tried that route was Fritz Weissner in 1939. He was freshly off an expedition to try to summit K2 in Himalaya, which is the second tallest mountain in the world. He also got up to My Little Notch, which climbers now call the Hilton, like the hotel, because it's so easy to stop and rest there. And he turned back from there. He couldn't figure out how to get past it. His partner, Bill Britton, tried next. And instead of climbing straight up with that blind hold, he snuck off to the right and found an easier path, getting the route named after him. But Devil's Lake isn't just for climbers. Far from it. The vast majority of visitors come for camping, hiking, swimming, boating, and just the novelty of having a picnic under cliffs in central Wisconsin. There are consistently more than 2.5 million visitors every year. Given that Wisconsin's entire population is 5.7 million people, that means on average about half of the state makes it to Devil's Lake and Baraboo annually, not accounting for out-of-state or repeat visitors. Travel magazines regularly rate Devil's Lake as one of the best state parks in the entire country. The park itself brings in more than $4 million in direct revenue and is estimated to generate more than $100 million each year for the broader community. To find out more about the geologic forces and events that created this natural Midwestern economic juggernaut and that slick, greasy, hard purple rock where I got scared, I spoke to a geologist who has studied the area for almost 50 years and is still active today. And I just wanna note that I talked to Gordon in his office and there was a bunch of construction going on in the hallway, so apologies for the background noise that you'll hear.
1: My name is Gordon Medeiros and I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I taught here for 29 years and I've been retired for 20 years. But I still do do geology because I have the opportunity to do it, and I love the science.
0: And like all scientists, Gordon does more than just research, and has a deeper connection to Devil's Lake than just his work.
1: And then I was an avid rock climber for many years, and Devil's Lake is the premier place to rock climb in the Midwest. And so I spent many happy weekends at Devil's Lake climbing on the Baraboo Quartzite.
0: But before learning to love Devil's Lake, Gordon came to studying geology and to Wisconsin by a few twists of fate.
1: Well, when I went to college, I went to Stanford in California, and um, I was interested in science. And so I just decided to try to major in geology because it required a lot of the science uh, sciences as background. And so I thought, well, this would give me more training in science, and if I like geology, I could continue on uh, on, on that subject for my career. And it turns out, when I took my first geology class, I fell in love with the subject of geology, and I've been a geologist ever since.
0: As for ending up in Wisconsin, half a continent away from his native west coast...
1: It was a job available when I graduated. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I went to Stanford as an undergraduate. I got my Ph.D. at UCLA. And uh, when I graduated, there was a position open at Wisconsin, which I applied for and was fortunate enough to get the position. Yeah. And so I came to Wisconsin, and I've been here ever since.
0: Gordon is a petrologist, which means he studies the chemistry and mineral makeup of rocks that cooled from melt deep inside the earth, and rocks that metamorphosed under high heat and pressure, like the rocks at Baraboo that changed from that crumbly, almost pure quartz red sandstone to a hard purple quartzite. But when he first came to Wisconsin, he wasn't planning to study the Baraboo quartzite. Like his experience falling into geology and ending up in Wisconsin, his career-long fascination with Baraboo started by accident he was attending a graduate student's thesis defense who was presenting on an odd rock layer beneath the main baraboo quartzite body. This layer wasn't known to be exposed on the surface, and all the evidence they had to work from was a core that had been drilled out of the bedrock. Gordon started asking questions and then never stopped. This took him on an investigative journey of ancient climate, tectonic events, earth's changing atmosphere, and what small changes in rock chemistry can tell us about these even when it all happened over a billion years ago. To tell this story, we're gonna start with the stratigraphy. That's the way geologists talk about how different rock units are related to each other, which ones are older, younger, and how they interact spatially. For example, let's imagine a clear lake with a clean, sandy bottom. One day, a big storm comes through and blows a bunch of tree leaves into the water. Those settle to the bottom and cover up all the sand. Then it turns out that storm had a lot of lightning and started a wildfire. The ash from the fire coats the surface of the lake, settles to the bottom, and creates a new ash layer. After a long time, a geologist comes up to this lake. Drilling into the sediment with a hollow bit they can pull up a core that shows a sand layer at the bottom and then an organic rich layer of decomposing leaves and then that thin layer of ash from the wildfire. And that's the stratigraphy. And from it, the geologist can reconstruct the sequence of events and how they relate to each other. That was a really simple stratigraphy and they can get way more complex. At Baraboo, our stratigraphy starts with basement rock, then goes into that famous purple quartzite above the basement. Then above the quartzite are some claystones and limestones. We're going to go through these one by one, but let's start with the basement, the oldest rock upon which the rest of the strata lie.
1: Sure, at, at Baraboo, the basement rocks are granite and diorite and rhyolite.
0: And those are what we call intrusive igneous rocks. They form as magmas slowly cool and solidify while they're still underground. That's contrasted with extrusive igneous rocks, like what form at volcanoes. Intrusive igneous rocks, like granite, are a common basement rock, and are often the basis of continental crust. So, if you remember back to the last episode, we had all these pieces of crust colliding and amalgamating to form the basement rock that now underlies Wisconsin. At Baraboo, we're zooming a few hundred million years into the future, and this proto-North American continent is hanging out in the ocean. and
1: well, there were no plants on land, so it would have been barren in that sense. But there were probably uh, algal forms and lichens and that type of uh, organic material that was on the surface. But it would, it would have looked very different than the present day surface. And so the baribou quartzite was deposited around 1600 million years ago. And so this was the time before there were land plants and land animals. Um, But at that time in the Precambrian, the composition of the atmosphere was very different than it is today. There was free oxygen in the atmosphere, but at very low levels. But the major difference is that there were higher levels of CO2 and methane. And because of that, uh, the nature of weathering would have been rather different than Mm -hmm. today. Uh, because of the effects of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere, CO2 especially. Okay. Uh, And CO2 would enhance uh, weathering of of the basement.
0: This concept of weathering is really important to the story of Baraboo. Weathering is the first step of the erosional process, breaking down solid rock into smaller bits. It can happen chemically, like an acid dissolving a limestone, or physically, like ice wedging apart a thin crack in a rock. Weathering can even alter a rock so much that the minerals that make it up change. Then, water and gravity carry that weathered material away, and that's erosion. And weathering of that basement rock in what's now the Baraboo area creates the next layer in our stratigraphy, which lies on top of the basement rock. It's that odd layer that first got Gordon interested in this investigation, it's called a paleosol, and it's essentially a fossil soil. Now, because there weren't any plants or much organic material at all, it wouldn't have looked like a soil does today. This soil would have just been the broken down bits, little pieces of the basement rock in a loose blanket over the, over the bedrock.
1: It's a reaction of the, of the minerals being weathered with CO2 and water in the atmosphere producing minerals that are the product of weathering, and minerals that are stable under these superficial low-temperature conditions.
0: And from this, we can actually gain some insights into what that location's climate was like back then, more than 1.6 billion, or 1,600 million, years ago.
1: Yes, by, by looking at the composition of the paleosol and various isotopes, one infers that the climate at that time at this locality was more was warmer and more humid than it is today. Just thinking of the effects of, of these uh, of atmospheric composition on weathering. Weathering in the modern sense is as an additional complication or factor because a lot of weathering is promoted by humic acids that are produced by plants on the surface. So you have an additional impetus for weathering. So so the weathering conditions or mechanisms were rather different today than they were sixteen hundred million years
0: ago. But from this paleosol we know the area was hot and humid, even more so than Wisconsin is today. Paleosols are a cool rock type because they form on land, and that's really rare. Normally when things are above water, erosion carries stuff away and there's only a gap in the geologic record when we look back in time. Paleosols are one of the few formations that actually leave something behind with information about what the conditions were like on land, and this paleosol forms the base, or maybe the transition, from the basement rock to the next unit in the stratigraphy, which was deposited on top of the paleosol, and this is...
1: In the Baraboo quartzite itself, uh, these rocks were deposited first uh, in a fluvial environment, deposited by streams, and then later in a tidal environment and then ultimately in a shallow marine
0: environment. But wait a second, wasn't I just talking about what was happening on land with that paleosol? And now we're underwater? What the heck is going on here? The key to what's going on lies in that sequence of events that Gordon just described the quartzite recording. The depositional environment for the sandstone that metamorphosed into the distinctive Baraboo quartzite started out as a braided stream type system, became a tidal system that was periodically underwater, like a sandy beach. And then finally, a shallow marine system just offshore. What's the pattern here? Well, the water got deeper. Through this sequence of the stratigraphy, we start with land-based paleosols. And then there's the gradual deepening environment of the quartz sandstone, from braided rivers to beach to tide. And finally, above that sandstone is further evidence of this subsidence, which means the sediment surface is deepening relative to sea level.
1: So there was this general subsidence as the sediments were accumulating, and then above the quartzite is a unit called the Seely slate. This is a basically a claystone that has since been metamorphosed. And then above the uh, Sealy Slate is the Freedom Formation, which consists of uh, carbonate rocks, dolomite, and iron formation, which was actually mined for iron ore uh, back in the early uh, 20th century.
0: So clay is deposited in deeper water than sand and carbonates in deeper water yet. And iron formation should be familiar to you from the last episode but this one, it's a bit of an outlier.
1: It is. It's one of the youngest iron formations known. Yeah, Yeah, so this iron formation then would have been about 1,600 million years old.
0: So that means there was a brief period of time, about 200 million years after the iron was deposited in the Pinocchian orogeny, when oxygen levels must have dipped, letting iron build up in the shallow marine environment near Baraboo. Then a resurgence of oxygen caused that iron to rust out and deposit iron formation. If that doesn't make sense and you haven't heard the first episode, you can learn much more about iron formations there. But this is our whole stratigraphy. So we have the basement of granite type rocks that are really old, then a paleosol, which is the soil made up of broken up bits of the basement. Then on top of the paleosol is the quartzite itself. And we're gonna focus more on this unique ancient sand here in a second. But above the quartzite, there's more evidence that waters continued to rise, first to deposit a claystone and then carbonate and iron formation. These are the layers of the cake that we're going to be working with for the rest of our story. But I want to get back to that singular quartzite, which is really what sets the Baraboo area geology apart.
1: Uh, But I think one of the most interesting things is the Baraboo quartzite itself, because it is extremely chemically mature. Um, it, it's basically it basically consists of silica, alumina, iron oxide, and basically that's it. And then there are small amounts of other things, but all of the alkali and uh, elements and calcium have been removed from these rocks, and it's just this is a result of its incredible uh, chemical maturity. And I don't know how to put this into words that would go on to a podcast, but if you look at the chemical index of alteration...
0: Well, luckily, putting things into words that would go on to a podcast is my job. So the chemical index of alteration, this is a tool to see how much a rock has been altered from its original form by weathering. So somewhere to the north and west of Baraboo was higher ground, made up of these granite-type rocks. These weathered and eroded down into tiny little pieces of sand, which were then deposited on the beaches at what's now Baraboo. The granite originally had a lot of different minerals in it, but some minerals, like feldspars, are more susceptible to be weathered than others. So all that's left by the time the sand accumulates on the beach at Baraboo is the hardy mineral quartz. So the chemical index of alteration, what you really need to know, is that it's telling us that this sand is really mature. It's gone through a lot since it used to be part of that solid granite. It's kind of like for people. The more mature we get, the more worn down we feel.
1: So they have been stripped of sodium, calcium, and potassium. So they're as mature chemically as one can get. Yeah. And so this is unusual in the geological record. There are lots of mature sandstones out there, but few are as incredibly mature as the bare quartzite. It, it's telling you that all of feldspar was completely removed from the basement as it was being weathered and producing the detritus for the sandstones. So you're basically producing detritus that was mostly quartz.
0: And that's one of the reasons that the Baraboo quartzite is so interesting, is that this sandstone is pure quartz. Feldspar is one of the most common minerals in granite, but it's been totally weathered away in the Baraboo quartzite. And that takes time, as well as a certain climate where weathering is encouraged with really high carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere.
1: It's more likely that this mature weathering was produced by a climate where CO2 was relatively high, which meant that the feldspars were more easily removed by weathering. Uh, It's thought that the surface was relatively flat, So you didn't have a lot of relief where material was being rapidly eroded away. And so this sort of ties in with the concept of time that you were talking about, is that you had a relatively uh, flat surface that was undergoing the weathering and over some amount of time, uh, and that is hard to determine.
0: There's two things going on here. First, there's the high carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere at that time in Earth's history. Carbon dioxide reacts with water to form a weak acid. That means that rain back then would have been more acidic than it is today, and rocks would weather and become mature much faster. Second, that flat surface means that it takes longer for the granite to erode down to the beach. If you're on a steep mountain, the rocks can, can tumble down really quickly, but on a big flat plain, it's going to take longer for water to Move the, the eroded bits from higher elevations to lower elevations because there's less relief. And that leads to the unique maturity we're seeing here at Baraboo. And really, the only other place in North America where there's similar sandstones are the massive stacks that create the iconic red rock deserts of the American Southwest. But those are more than a billion years younger than the rocks at Baraboo, and they never metamorphosed. If it hadn't been for the metamorphosis of the Baraboo quartzite, which hardened the rock and turned it from red to purple, Central Wisconsin might have looked a bit more like Utah, different climates aside. But the chemistry of the sand itself isn't all that's cool about the Baraboo quartzite that purple rock that defines the Devil's Lake area. When water moves over sand, it leaves behind distinctive patterns that geologists can link to different types of water movement, like rivers, waves, tides, or floods. They all leave a different pattern. And what's really cool about the Baraboo quartzite is that through its long history, its metamorphosis in a mountain building event that we're gonna talk about in a minute, those patterns have actually been preserved. And this isn't Gordon's specialty, but he was able to explain some of the basics.
1: I'm I'm not a sedimentologist, but just in general, from this uh, sort of uneducated point of view, if you look at the fluvial um, part of the section, you you see uh, pebbles, you have pebbly sandstones and these type of features are typical of uh, stream deposition if you go up into the tidal zone you see fine sands and cross stratification
0: which are one of those patterns that you see in sandstones
1: and the characteristics of these cross stratification suggest a, a tidal environment but you know there are lots of different cross strata and features but for a sedimentologist that person can look at this and say, ah, oh, that's
0: the title." And I think this is fascinating, and I really wanted to learn more, so I called a friend who's also spent time studying the Baraboo quartzite.
2: So I'm Esther Stewart, and I'm a Precambrian geologist at the Wisconsin Geological and Natural History Survey, and I wound up in Wisconsin in sort of a roundabout way. I had uh, graduated with a degree in geology and moved to Houston to work in the oil industry, um, but Houston was a, a big city, and so we, my family and I were looking for a, a place closer to family and wound up in Wisconsin.
0: Coming here and studying the oldest rocks in Wisconsin, she's spent a lot of time at Baraboo, and she knows the rocks well.
2: Yeah, the sedimentary structures are um, fascinating. I think of them as, as fossils, so you can you can understand about a depositional environment by looking at fossils of animals. But you can also look at fossils of of these things called sedimentary structures, which are features that form in sedimentary rocks due to currents like water or wind uh, that moves the sediments around. So if you're if you ever go and walk up a stream or go to the beach, you've probably seen ripple marks, or there are these things called parting lineations where you watch the ocean waves slosh up onto the coastline and then run back into the ocean, they leave behind straight lines in the sand. And sometimes those get preserved in the rocks. And then that would give you a sense of what the water currents were like and what direction the currents were flowing. So in the Baraboo Hills, keep in mind, these are like a billion, at least a billion, 400 million years old, maybe more likely a billion, 600 or a billion, 700 million years old. And there are beautiful ripples that are preserved. So, fossils of ripples, which tell you something about water depth. You know that the rocks are deposited underwater, and there were fairly gentle currents that were sloshing the sand back and forth. And then sand kept on raining down on top of those those ripples and preserved, burying them and preserving them. The most common set structure is called cross bedding. And those are if you take ripples or, or maybe little, several centimeter thick sand dunes and you slice through them so you if you imagine that you're you have these ripples or layers in a cake and you slice through the cake you're looking at the side of the cake
0: there's also strange layers that might be evidence of storms battering the Baraboo hills all those hundreds and hundreds of millions of years ago
2: you know what else is is i think is fascinating is um the shape of the Baraboo hills was formed in the Precambrian and then in the Paleozoic when the when the tropical seas transgressed over Wisconsin, the Baraboo Hills were like an island chain in this tropical sea. And there are, so if you've ever been hiking on some of the trails, you can see where you have the Precambrian quartzite and then these boulders, the boulder conglomerate layer from the Parfrees Glen. So the idea is that there were hurricanes that came in and ripped boulders off of the islands that were made up of the Baraboo quartzite and then deposited them around the rims. And I, I think that Bob Dott, like measured the boulder sizes and was able to interpret the current and wind direction, which is, which is fascinating.
0: It's really amazing that in a quartzite that's something like 1.7 or 1.6 billion years old and has been fully metamorphosed, you can still look at it and see wind and water moving over the sand and storms battering island coasts. You can almost today still see the ancient tides, the waves, and the gales themselves when you look at the rock. But there's a lot we still don't know about this rock, including exactly when it was deposited.
2: They're known as the Baraboo Interval, so they're sediments that were deposited sometime between a billion seven hundred and sixty million years ago, and maybe a billion four hundred million years ago, and it's, that's a, a big time period. So we know the older, the older constraint because these are sediments that are on top of igneous rocks. And so you can get an absolute age date from the igneous rocks, which tells us that those rocks are 1,760,000,000 years old. So we know that because these are sediments that are on top of those older uh, igneous rocks, they have to have been deposited at a younger time. So that's the, the older constraint.
0: So the rocks must be younger than the basement upon which they sit, because the basement had to be there first for the sediments to be deposited on top of it. And we know that the sandy beaches were here sometime after those basement rocks formed at about 1.76 billion years ago. That's 1,760 million years ago. At the younger side of Esther's age range, about 1.4 million years ago, that's something we'll talk about in more detail in a few minutes. But for now, just know that the rocks are at most 1.76 billion years old, but not younger than 1.4 billion. That's a big range, like Esther said.
2: Because these are so old, there aren't fossils that people can use to, to constrain the age. And so far, nobody has found anything like volcanic ash layers, which could be dated directly. Um, so, so we really have a poor constraint on the age. One tool that that geologists use are detrital zircons. So these are minerals that get washed in with the sand grains as the sediments are getting deposited.
0: You'll remember zircons from the last episode. They're the really hardy minerals that geologists use as the clocks in our rocks. Detrital zircon dating is using tiny amounts of these minerals that accumulate in sedimentary rocks like the sandstone to figure out the oldest that the sedimentary rock might be. So the zircons come from igneous rocks, like the basement here at Baraboo or nearby mountain ranges. They erode down and become part of the sediment. If the detrital zircon is a certain age, then the sediment it's part of must be younger than that age, because it took time for the zircon to erode and get deposited and become part of the sediment. And it's just tiny, tiny amounts that we're finding in these sandstones. For a research project, I once collected more than 10 pounds of a sandstone in Alaska, and we only found about 100 of these tiny microscopic crystals out of that whole mass.
2: And you can get a fairly precise age date on the minerals. And since you know that the minerals had to have been there before the sediments were deposited, then the youngest population of ages from those minerals can help constrain the age of the sediments.
0: So we have this idea of a 200 million year period when these rocks might have been deposited, but not much more than that. That's a really large amount of uncertainty, but that's what it's like to work in the deep past. But Baraboo's story, the story of the strange purple cliffs at Devil's Lake State Park, it isn't over. If it ended right here, that pure sandstone would still be buried deep, inaccessible to the climbers and hikers who flock to it today. Something had to happen to prevent it from just laying there, flat, and fading into the subsurface. So one good way to keep rock from getting buried, just like the iron formations up in northern Wisconsin, is to turn it into a mountain. So, the culprit? Another mountain-building event in ancient Wisconsin. So when mountains get built, you have two tectonic plates colliding, and that generates a ton of force, enough to crumple them all up and fold them into intricate patterns. At Baraboo, remember these sediments were originally flat-lying, and then the mountain-building event would crumple them up.
2: The rocks that make up the Baraboo hills are ancient sediments, and they were so they were deposited originally as flat layers, and then there was a mountain-building event that happened um, either at one billion six hundred million years ago or one billion four hundred million years ago, or possibly two times. There might have been two episodes of folding. And those mountain building processes took the flat-lying sediments and folded them and also caused them to, you know, get some of them to get more deeply buried. And then over hundreds of millions of years, as um, seas transgressed and regressed over Wisconsin, much younger Paleozoic sediments buried buried those mountain ranges. And then, you know, we're in the process of, of exhuming or lifting up and stripping off the the younger Paleozoic sediments and revealing that original topography that formed billions of years ago, or more than a billion and a half years ago or so.
0: What Esther is telling us here is that something collided with what is now Wisconsin, maybe from down to the Southwest. If you hold your hand palm up and curl it into a U, that's what happens to the rocks at Baraboo. The inns, your fingers and the heel of your palm, they became mountains but the stuff in the middle got buried really deep down. Then, hundreds of millions of years later, oceans rose and turned those mountains into islands, and sediments were deposited on top of everything that was underwater. That's when those hurricanes deposited those boulder layers that we talked about earlier. But when sea levels fell back down, those sediments started eroding, bringing the buried quartzite back to the surface very, very slowly. That process, in fact, is still going on today, but this fold, this U shape, is really important to the modern topography in the Baraboo area.
2: Yeah, so the the Baraboo line is a fold that's shaped like a canoe. So if you if you fold your hands, there's the north and south range of the Baraboo Hills, right? And if you imagine flying over it, or flying over like in an airplane or something, and looking down imagine that you're looking at a canoe shaped bowl and the north and south range of the Baraboo hills are like the north and south rim of the bowl or the canoe.
0: And as for Devil's Lake,
2: Devil's lake is sort it's on the south uh, range, so the southern edge of the bowl and it's fascinating because it is within an ancient valley that was carved into the folded uh, Precambrian rocks at some point probably, before the Cambrian time. So, so it might be a river valley that formed, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, maybe even before the Cambrian explosion of life because um, it's, it's infilled by Cambrian sediment. So we know that since the Cambrian, the Cambrian rocks are inside of this valley in different places that it must've formed before then. And then the, the modern Devil's Lake is in a particularly deep part of that valley.
0: So the Cambrian explosion, which was when multicellular and skeletal animals burst onto the scene of planetary life, that was 542 million years ago. So Esther is saying that Devil's Lake is filling in a valley that was there even longer. More than half a billion years before today, you could still see the valley that now became Devil's Lake. So we've got this folding of the strata, and the timing of when that happened is kinda uncertain. Maybe it was 1,600 million years ago, 1.6 billion, or maybe 1,400 million years ago, or maybe even both. But Gordon has done some research recently that suggests we might be getting closer to knowing definitively. And he thinks that the folding happened towards the end of that range, near 1.4 billion years ago.
1: So there were several major Orogenic or mountain building events that affected the Lake Superior region, uh, extending all the way from about uh, 2.8 billion years ago to about 1 billion years ago. And when one speaks of the Baraboo orogeny, this refers to an episode about 1,400 million years ago uh, when there was folding of the strata, including folding of the Baraboo quartzite and regional metamorphism and emplacement of granites at that time, uh, namely the Wolf River Batholith. So the bare blue Orozni refers to this event that included deformation, metamorphism, igneous intrusion at about 1,400 million years ago, actually about 1,475 million years ago.
0: OK, and I know that was a lot, but we're gonna break it down what's going on one by one. There's a few things going on there. Deformation, metamorphism, and an igneous intrusion. And so how we know these events are related is a triumph of geologic dating methods, which I touched on briefly in the last episode. Let's break this all down for Baraboo. The igneous intrusion, which is called the Wolf River batholith in this case, is a fancy way of saying a big chunk of granite-like rocks that often form during an origin, it's a large chunk of magma that injects or intrudes into the bedrock and cools to form that large granite body. They're also easy to date. But the other two parts of this story the deformation, where the flat beds of Baraboo sandstone got folded by compression into an asymmetric U shape, forming mountains on either tip of the U, and then the metamorphism, which turned it from sandstone to quartzite, these are harder to date. They don't produce anything new that you can pinpoint as a distinct point in time. They're just altering things that were already there. And until just a few years ago, here's what we knew. The sandstone quartzite was deposited sometime just older than 1.6 billion years ago. The Wolf River batholith, that granite, came later, about 1.475 billion years ago. The folding, aka mountain building, could have happened any time between the two. In fact, for a long time, geologists thought that the origin that caused the folding was older than the Wolf River Batholith. But then, an innovative method of dating came along. They could take tiny crystals of muscovite, which you might know as mica, that flaky, shiny uh, mineral. They found tiny bits of muscovite that seemed to have formed in the structure of the fold, so it was oriented in a way that lined up with the deformation not lined up with the sedimentary structures, like the ripples that we talked about a few minutes ago. To go back to Esther's canoe analogy, the crystals of these muscovites are lined up with the long axis of the canoe. Instead of being lined up with the other sedimentary structures, like the ripples, that you'd expect if they were a mineral that was there when the rock originally formed, that tells us that the mineral grew at the time that the rocks were folded, since they're aligned with that U shape. They weren't originally there, and a structural geologist would call this alignment being in line with the folds axial plane. Just think of that as the long direction of the canoe shape at Baraboo.
1: The, the critical thing is that the mineral that's being dated is parallel to the axial yeah. plane of the fold, okay. so it must be integrally related to the folding event itself. Yeah. and and the Argon method gives the time of freezing in of the Argon system. And in this case, it does, in fact, give you the age of deformation. The, yeah. Sort of the, the crystallization age or the the freezing in age of the muscovite yeah. that is parallel to the fold features. Yeah. And since, uh, since these isotopic methods have emerged, we can now date minerals in the folded Baraboo quartzite to show that it was folded around 1460 to 1480 million years ago by dating the muscovite that was crystallized parallel to the axial planes of folds in the quartzite.
0: So this is a little complicated, but what it means is that almost at exactly the same time as that batholith was being intruded, that igneous body, the folding was happening. So the two must be related. The folding and the intrusion of the granite and the metamorphosis from sandstone to quartzite, they were all part of one origin.
1: And we decided to name this the Baraboo rogyny because the folding and metamorphism is best shown by the Baraboo quartzite in the Baraboo range.
0: So back about 1.475 billion years ago, Baraboo was folded up into giant mountains and that Wolf River Batholith was in place nearby. And it took all of this, the folding, the metamorphosis to quartzite, to give us the devil's lake that we see today.
1: Yes, in the sense that the uh, higher elevations are in the Baraboo quartzite that has been tilted up on end. So the Baraboo quartzite is a very resistant rock to erosion. And so it stands higher than the surrounding rocks. And so that elevation is a reflection of the folding of the Baraboo quartzite and its uh, capacity to resist erosion.
0: That brings us back to why Devil's Lake and the Baraboo quartzite bring so much tourism to central Wisconsin.
1: Well, because southern Wisconsin is pretty flat and you see cornfields surrounding you. And Devils Lake uh, has this beautiful lake and some exposure of the bearwood quartzite. Uh, so it has, it's topographically and geographically much more interesting than the surrounding part of the state. Yeah. And, so, and also there are many um, activities you can do at the state park. Uh, you can hike, you can mountain bike, you can climb, you can ski in the wintertime. Uh, Devil's Lake is a wonderful place for scuba diving. So there are all these activities that one finds at uh, Devil's Lake State Park.
0: So to get the Devil's Lake that so many treasure today with all those activities that at least two and a half million people visit every year, it took all these geologic events. First, a subsiding continent sinking into the sea to create a massive beach. Some estimates put the size of this beach at 300,000 square kilometers. That's like the entire area of the state of Arizona. Then, there's an origin where the rocks get folded up to a broad U-shape, that canoe shape that Esther told us about, setting up the modern bluffs. And the metamorphism that hardened the rock to resist almost a billion and a half years of erosion As a teaser, there is also some glacial scraping that helped shape this landscape, but we'll get into that in a later episode. Add it all up and you get purple cliffs overlooking a clear blue lake in the center of flat Wisconsin. So the next time that you visit Devil's Lake State Park, take the time to appreciate how it took over a billion and a half years of history to give us this landscape. It took the erosion of that basement and forming the sedimentary layers where we can still see the evidence of ancient water. It took the folding that folded it up and made that canoe shape, giving us mountains and a valley. It took millions and millions of years of erosion to bring those rocks back up to the surface. In that place, you're standing in topography that's been developing slowly for so many years, but... But it's kind of crazy that the topography would look familiar even more than 500 million years ago. And if you're hiking the bluffs or the boulder fields, keep an eye on the rocks to look out for those ripple marks or the other cross strata, the sedimentary structures, those fossil sediments that that Esther told us all about. And take the time to think about how this landscape, and really any landscape, is the result of millions or billions of years of history. And that process of history making is still ongoing, In fact, of all the forces that shape the land, humans have an outsized impact. We're agents of geologic change, and we can transform the world around us on a massive scale. Or we can become stewards of the land. What we make of that choice and which future we choose, that's a huge responsibility. At a place like Baraboo, where we can take a peek into deep time, You can develop care for the Earth by recognizing how long it took that place to become what it is, and by reflecting on the obligation of being able to consciously become part of that place's history with repercussions that can long outlive us and our small stories. Next time on Under Our Feet, we're going back up north to the shores of Lake Superior to learn about an event that was kind of the opposite of these mountain building events. It's called the Mid-Continent Rift. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, it really does help us if you leave a rating or a review. And I know you're probably a person, like me, who usually doesn't leave a rating or a review on a podcast, but I'd encourage you to try it out. Maybe just this once. Tell a friend that you think might like it too. That helps other people find us. If you want to support Under Our Feet, you can go to patreon.com slash there's a link also at uofpod.org. There you can get cool benefits like shout-outs on the podcast, the ability to select topics for mini-episodes, and bumper stickers or t-shirts. For more information about the show, go to our website, uofpod.org. Also there, you can find my contact info. Let me know if I got anything wrong or if there's anything about Wisconsin geology that you're curious about and want me to cover. Thanks. Thanks. Before you go, I want to first of all thank Gordon Medeiros and Esther Stewart for the excellent interviews. Also many thanks to the American Geophysical Union's Voices for Science program, which lent financial support, podcasting expertise, and immeasurable encouragement. The music you heard was the song Arizona Moon by the Blue Dot Sessions. And finally, as always, thanks to Jeremy Randolph-Flag, who you didn't hear, but who has been instrumental in conceiving of and developing the ideas for Under Our Feet. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.